What is the fraud life cycle, and how can organizations best respond to it? Hi, this is Tom Field. I'm Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm discussing the fraud life cycle today with Daniel Ingvaldson, He's CTO of Easy Solutions. Daniel, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Hi, Tom. Daniel, let's start right up front by defining the fraud life cycle. I'd love for you to describe it to us and, and offer up what are the stages of fraud, the specific stages that banking institutions need to be thinking about. Sure. So, you know, we, we like talking about um, the fraud life cycle because it, it, it generally is a, is a concept that applies to all of our customers. Uh, you know, we, we deal primarily with, with customers who are dealing with, with online fraud, mostly in the financial services organization, but, but now expanding into other verticals. But, you know, really w- with respect to, um, to online fraud and a lot of the other channels of fraud, whether they're, you know, kind of more financial-centric channels like, like ATM or, or IVR, integrated voice response, uh, or mobile channels, and, and any sort of fraud that might affect these channels is really the same uh, with respect to these three stages. The first stage is the planning stage. Uh, the second stage is the launching phase, and the last is the caching phase. So you can argue that, that there's lots of distinctions and lots of um, nuances and different sorts of fraud, but generally every single attempt, uh, even one that crosses different channels, would kind of follow this process. It's, it's an important model for, for us internally at Easy Solutions because what we try to do is try to build products and technologies and services that attack fraud at, at each discrete stage to provide kind of a, a, a stronger cumulative benefit or a stronger solution to prevent fraud altogether. So, Daniel, how do you find that the fraud tools differ at each stage, and why do you find that one might be more effective than another depending on the stage? Sure. So it's really important to think about this um, kind of from, from a high level. From my perspective and, and from my company's perspective at Easy Solutions, it's, it's not realistic to, to approach customers and say that, that we're going to stop your fraud by focusing on one specific stage. And you can even kind of extend this into, into kind, of a, kind of a theoretical argument. If we would produce, you know, some sort of product or technology or solution, which was 100% effective at stopping one specific fraud at one specific stage, it would instantly be 100% obsolete because the attackers would simply move on or adjust what they were doing to bypass whatever countermeasure we, we were able to put in place. So it's, a, it's important for vendors and you know, specifically technology vendors to be honest about what we're dealing with here. You know, being in the anti-fraud business is an adversarial business. Uh, we are not dealing with, with a target which is standing still. We're not dealing with an adversary who has limited resources. We're not dealing with an adversary who has limited creativity. So we have to make sure that, 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 we're, that we're honest with our customers and we talk about how we can deploy discrete, unique technologies to deal with, with certain phases. For example, the planning stage, the first stage, is generally around, around reconnaissance, intelligence gathering, kind of target selection. What does a, a bad guy look for when he's targeting a bank or targeting an online property for some sort of uh, attack later on? What sort of breadcrumbs can we pick up? What sort of, uh, of, of things can be detected? Uh, also, how can we advise our customers to make their sites appear to be harder targets? There's all sorts of things that you can do there. On the launching phase, this is typically when, when the bad guy or the fraudster has made his selection and he starts to target the bank or target the online property. And this could mean you know, a phishing attack, a farming attack, uh, a malware attack, which is, which is focused uh, squarely on, on trying to acquire um, uh, login credentials, what we call account takeover. And then on the back end, there's caching. Uh, so up to this point, you know, the bad guy has scanned a, a set of targets. He's made a selection. He's launched an attack. And now he's potentially gained access to, to some accounts, uh, whether or not you know, it's through the, through the branch, 
um, you know, through, through a mobile phone piece of malware or, or through the e-banking online channel, for example. But the money, you know, the money might, might have been moved around internally, but it hasn't actually left the organization. So you can argue that, that no fraud has actually happened at that point. But caching is, is, a, is an extremely important place to focus energy because it's where the multi-channel thing comes, in, comes into play. You know, we see a lot of, of attacks which are designed to bypass traditional anti-fraud uh, techniques because sometimes some of the monitoring is focused only on e-banking or only on, on, on checking or credit cards. So the bad guys will simply move uh, money across different channels uh, to, to, to actually find a way to get it out of the bank via caching, via ACH or wire transfer. So we've developed technology, and, and there's lots of technology in the market to focus on trying to prevent you know, the final stage, the caching phase, which is focused on, on getting money out of the bank. So we believe that, that, that we have to have overlapping technologies in each phase in order to um, limit the amount of fraud uh, which, which can be taken all the way to the end and be, and be deemed successful for, for the adversary or for the fraudster. Well, given that context, let's take a step back. Daniel, how effective would you say today's tools are at stopping fraud? Well, you know, today the banks in the, in the, in the U.S., the banks in, in Latin America, they're, uh, they're much better off than they were, say, five or ten years ago. Some of the banks in Latin America where they were dealing with, with advanced, you know, man-in-the-middle, man-in-the-browser, Trojan horse programs back in the early 2000s, and they were aggressively scrambling to try to find a way to make sure that, that the bad guys couldn't steal two-factor authentication credentials to, to bypass uh, what the banks were trying to deploy. I'd say that the banks now are, are much more well-prepared to deal with, um, with, with the latest fraud, but there's always something new coming. Our customers are, are very concerned about the mobile channel. They're very concerned about mobile malware. They're extraordinarily concerned about how dangerous the Android ecosystem is with respect to malware. So a lot of our customers are, are looking for ways that they can solidify the security of, of the mobile channel. They've done a lot to focus on e-banking. They've followed all the recommendations from the FFIEC here in the U.S., which is focused on, on, on implementing or actually a forced implementation of multi-factor authentication as well as layered security approaches, which goes directly in, aligned with, um, with, with, with our approach. So mobile is a big one right now. There's a big gap. You know, I think the bad guys are ahead with respect to, to mobile security, but you know, the, the, the tools are always getting better, but the fraudsters are always trying to move on to the next thing. What we're doing is our focus on limiting the lifespan of attacks. When there's, uh, when there's malware or phishing or farming attacks, which are designed to, um, to, to steal accounts in, in, the, in those first two stages, the, kind of the, the, uh, the planning stage and the launching phase, we're focused on, on reducing the lifespan of those attacks as, as much as possible uh, to, to really limit. Uh, think, think of it as a funnel. You know, if, if fraud is a funnel, at the top you have all the opportunity. At the bottom you have the, the fraud which emerges in the form of a cash event. Um, we're trying to, to constrict that funnel at every stage. Uh, to limit the number of accounts which are stolen, to reduce the lifespan of attacks, to limit the effectiveness of malware on mobile devices or PCs, and then catch fraud on the way out the door. That's really the, 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 the most effective approach, and that's what banks are really trying to do, to intelligently layer in technologies which focus on you know, each of those stages. So let's talk about some of what you see out in the real world. Can you offer up some examples of how you're seeing cyber criminals now stealing directly from the financial institutions? Wow, there's, there's so many examples. Um, you know, the, a lot of the regulations and a lot of the, the disclosure requirements have really led to kind of shedding light on some of the stories and some of the, the high-profile or, or, or large thefts over the years. Got easy solutions being in the industry, we're, we're, we're certainly privy to a lot of these attacks, but, but previously they were always confidential. Now they're front-page news. I think the most recent one, which was shocking in its size and scale, uh, was the theft of, of about $45 million from two Middle Eastern banks. 
I, I think there might there might be a movie script behind uh, behind this this actual hack. But but this was um, a very large scale attack uh, focused on on actually uh, hacking into the infrastructure of two credit card processors, which were between the actual card issuing banks and, and the ATMs. The information that has been made public is there's a, there's a small number of, of people, really a low-level gang in, in New York, which was arrested for using um, stolen PIN information and ATM cards to, to walk around uh, Manhattan in and, and, and two, uh, two separate 24-hour periods and, and, and extract millions and millions of dollars from ATMs. Uh, they were only a, a very, very small part of this process. There was a $45 million theft, and the one, the one crew that was, um, that was put in jail uh, only stole a couple million dollars. But the more interesting part of that is the upstream infrastructure behind the attack, kind of the industrial nature of the attack. What the bad guys did, and these guys are still out there, they haven't been arrested or even mentioned publicly, is they, is they actually compromised the credit card processor. And they, and they stole um, only, only a handful of, of ATM card numbers and, and pins. They then printed up those, those cards, sent them off to caching crews, basically uh, teams of guys all over the world, that would, in a synchronized fashion, start extracting money as quickly as possible from ATMs all over the place. But what they did was they basically um, made sure that whenever those ATM cards were put into the ATM, and the ATM network would, would look for validation uh, if there was money on that card, or they hacked into the servers that were making those determinations, and they provided that the answer would always be yes. Uh, so it was essentially an unlimited uh, balance on those cards, and, and this was called the unlimited operation. You know, so this was a very sophisticated attack, which used um, you know, separate layers of, of people, kind of a hierarchy of people with different skills, uh, kind of a global, international scheme that stole millions and millions of dollars. Uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing those not so often on that scale, uh, but certainly these, these complex, kind of, kind of tiered attacks, uh, which are designed to, in a flash, remove millions of dollars from bank accounts. And we're also seeing, you know, less, uh, less sophisticated, less elegant attacks, but, but ones which are arguably just as effective. We have customers that are dealing with problems when key loggers or physical key loggers are somehow making their ways uh, into branches. And those key loggers are, are used to steal credentials when actual bank tellers or branch managers are logging into internal systems. Um, and they're using a, uh, a wireless bridge or basically a, kind of a covert access point. Uh, so a bad guy can sit across the street, steal login credentials for a trusted internal employee, and then um, actually uh, take control of those sessions and, and, and actually create their own, their own transfers. So there's really it runs the gamut. These these can be super sophisticated, kind of virtual attacks only, kind of in, in the cyber realm, or they can actually involve a, a physical element when a person is is paying off uh, an insider or or paying off kind of a kind of a, uh, a, a a a trusted employee of a bank to actually place a device within within a bank branch to compromise it later on. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of things, and the attacks are always creative. They're always new, and they're always leveraging some specific or discrete vulnerability. Or some uh, or some trust uh, relationship within within a bank within an organization, which can then be exploited. Well, so the attacks are creative and they're coming from everywhere. And my final question for you is: Given what we've discussed here, how do you see banks evolving their fraud protection strategy so that they can counter this creativity and this ongoing assault? I think the best bankers and the best anti-fraud groups are, are ones which are very, very pragmatic. You know, bankers, bankers know that they will lose some amount of money to fraud every year. So they have to be very careful and very cautious to make sure that they apply their resources in the way that it makes sense. They want to make sure that they're staying ahead of the bad guys, but really just ahead or really at par so they can manage and have predictable rates of losses. Every bank out there, as I said, is, is dealing with this. They're always going to have issues. They're always going to have vulnerabilities. 
so it, it's important for, for them to always look at new technologies, you know, look at look at new approaches, but also understand kind of the downstream costs. You know, what is the cost of, of deploying a new technology amongst lots of legacy technology in a very complex environment? A lot of banking infrastructures are, are, are mixed and very heterogeneous due to, you know, uh, you know, kind of years and years, perhaps decades of, of legacy technology being, being deployed to, to prevent various types of fraud or various types of security exposures. Uh, and you also see it with, with acquisitions. You know, the, the, the financial services industry is very acquisitive. Uh, you often have lots of infrastructures being, being glued together uh, in integrations uh, after, after acquisitions close. So, so bankers are very pragmatic, and they understand that they have to understand kind of the true cost of deploying new technology. And what we try to do with our customers is, is provide them, you know, the ability to, to manage their legacy infrastructure, uh, but also layer in uh, new techniques or, or, or new, new countermeasures to, to provide a more effective defense while not increasing cost elsewhere. You know, it's important for us uh, with our customers to, to make sure that, that, that we can help them reduce their losses while not increasing other costs or creating hidden costs for them down the road. Well, Daniel, as always, I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. The topic has been the fraud life cycle. I've been talking with Daniel Ingvaldson, CTO of Easy Solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.